Hello and thank you very much indeed for joining me. I'm Professor Alistair Duff and this is the Polymath Podcast. In this series I do my best to open up a wide range of ideas, books and issues. In this one I want to discuss privacy. It's going to be in four sections. First, some introductory remarks, obviously. Second, some philosophy. Please don't switch off. I think you'll enjoy it. Third, I'm going to examine the solutions to privacy problems. And fourth, I'm going to end with something else. I'll tell you about that later. Anyway, let's get started in a second. Do you feel you're losing your privacy, or privacy as the Americans call it? Do you feel that you're under surveillance in some way, that you're being tracked, that you're losing your autonomy even? Many of us do. I can think of two examples. One is a town in England a few years ago, I won't name it, and a guy was sitting on a park bench, minding his own business, but he dropped some litter, and suddenly out of the blue, he hears a voice saying, pick that up. There was a hidden camera with audio capabilities, and for me, that crosses a line. I hate litter louts as much as anybody, but I really don't want hidden cameras in parks. Then there was an example just recently of a pharmacy in Scotland, a family pharmacy, again I won't name it, and they were apparently sharing purchase information with third parties, including people's contact details. And this again seems like a red line. We do not expect that. We expect some level of privacy and confidentiality when we're buying stuff online. Offline and online, we seem to have a surveillance problem. We seem to be drifting into a surveillance society with many culprits, the state, the council in that park example, ourselves giving our privacy away inadvertently sometimes or through insufficient care and commercial organizations all sorts of organizations that make up society seem to be intruding more and more into our lives online as I say as well as offline what are we going to do about this well first of all we have to understand it and in the next segment of this polymath podcast I'm going to delve a little into some literature and even philosophy. Please join me.
how should we understand what's going on? One thing we can do is read good books about it. Of course, the classic is Orwell's 1984, which is a tale, if you haven't read it, of a figure called Winston Smith, no doubt named after Winston Churchill. The book came out shortly after the Second World War. And it's set in the future in a kind of nightmare scenario where privacy has been eradicated and even memory and people don't have identities really anymore and Winston Smith tries to fight against the system heroically. I won't spoil it if, in case you haven't read it but it's a wonderful tale of human the human spirit fighting against a system of surveillance and oppression. That's given us great terms like Big Brother. Big Brother is watching you. And that's terribly useful in privacy battles because you can hit people with that stick. You're becoming like Big Brother. It's a good way of focusing our privacy concerns and a good way of scaring off those who would intrude upon our privacy, whether that's the state or Facebook or whoever it is. We don't want a Big Brother state so Orwell's bequeathed us these useful terms. Another one, and I, and I don't think you'll have heard of this probably, is Facial Justice by L.P. Hartley. You might have heard of his other book, well he wrote lots, but one of his other books, The Go-Between, or you might have seen the film, but he wrote this lesser known book called Facial Justice. And again, it's set in the future in a system where people are being abused by the state, by the, by the authorities, and it's a, an egalitarian state, and they're trying to eradicate inequalities, including facial inequalities. So people who are too good-looking are under pressure to become beatified and become average-looking. It's women only. The men are allowed to do what they like. And the ugly, if you like, are given surgery to improve their looks, so they become beatified as well. So there are very few alphas and gammas. Everyone's being beatified. And this scenario, which I think you'll agree is a nightmare scenario, has surveillance at its core. People are under scrutiny the whole time, including how good they look, where they go, what they do. So literature can provide these useful tropes and terminology and ideas which can help us to understand perhaps what is going on today as we feel our privacy is diminishing daily. But what about heavy-duty philosophy? This is a subject I've studied in some depth. And I have to say, I haven't found a single page directly on privacy in any of the, of the excuse me, canonical philosophers. Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Locke, John Stuart Mill, T.H. Green, and right down to John Rawls. What, what is it that stops them talking about privacy? I think it's because they're men, basically. And men haven't had a privacy issue. Women have been confined to the private sphere historically and currently in developing countries. 
And so men haven't really had to theorize about privacy. They haven't had enforced privacy like, you know, the way women sometimes do. So you can't find much on privacy in the philosophical canon, at least of the West. I'm no expert on Eastern philosophy. In fact, I'm pretty ignorant about it. But you won't find reflections on privacy, basically. You will find it on liberty and justice and all of that, of course, relates to privacy. But directly, there's, there's very little on privacy. There's one exception, however, a big exception, and that is Jeremy Bentham, the founder of the school of thought called Utilitarianism, which has been very influen influential excuse me, in philosophy and also in politics and public policy. And Bentham also came out with the idea of the panopticon, which is Greek for all-seeing. And he was concerned about prison conditions because, of course, in his day, the 18th century, prisons were pretty barbaric. They had hulk ships. They had jails, which were dangerous. And he wanted a solution to this. He was a great reformer. And he comes up with the idea of, of the Panopticon Penitentiary. I've actually seen his diagrams, his plans for this. And he wanted it built in London and tried to persuade Pitt, the Prime Minister, to fund it. But in fact, that never came through in the end. However, it did influence other buildings and other agencies. And uh, we still have this term Panopticon still around today. So his basic idea was that prisons should be circular, not rectangular, and the cells would be round the rim, and the guards bit would be in the centre. The fronts of the cells would be transparent. There'd be one prisoner in each cell. That was in his original plan. And the prisoners wouldn't be able to see the guard hut or they couldn't see the guards in their little hut that would be obscured to them but the guards could see the prisoners all the time and Bentham thought this would in effect make the prisoners obedient and internalize make them internalize conformity and obeying rules and he thought that would civilize them it would protect prisoners from one another, and but it would also regenerate the prisoners morally because they would be exposed to scrutiny. It's an interesting thought because we tend to think of the panopticon as a negative. It's a boo word, not a hooray word. But for Bentham, that wasn't the case. He thought the big problem with society was secrecy and indeed privacy. And he thought they generated hypocrisy and hiding your true self, and corruption, and worse. And he thought what's needed is sunshine, the sunshine of publicity, because that would cleanse us. And so for him, the panopticon, what he meant by that was an open society, would be infinitely preferable to our closed, sec secretive, and private societies. It's a very interesting and radical thought, and it's still influential in some circles today. 
If you go up University Avenue in Glasgow, where I currently live, or at least I live in Greater Glasgow, you'll find a building on the university campus, Glasgow University, which is circular, and it's a library where in the old days the librarian used to sit in the middle and he or she could see what every student was reading. It was the undergraduate reading room built on Benthamite principles. And there are other buildings around the world. There was actually a prison in Cuba built as a panopticon, but they've dismantled that now. So there's a very interesting precedent that Bentham set. So I think he's the only philosopher who really thought deeply about privacy and surveillance in the canon of Western philosophy. But if you bring it up to speed, philosophers have got quite interested in it. And true to what I was saying earlier, it's women who have been doing most of the running on this, women philosophers. As I say, I think it's because women have suffered enforced privacy, so they've had to think about privacy. A lot of feminist philosophers have come out with lines like, we need to explode the private if we want to emancipate women. And, you know, women have not been allowed in the public sphere, haven't been allowed to communicate, haven't been allowed to participate in politics, and sometimes not even in the economy. And before we point the finger at other countries, this was the case in Britain up to the Victorian era and even after that. So really, we, we can't cast stones on that matter at developing countries. But anyway, I think the best philosopher on privacy today, discussing privacy today, is Helen Nissenbaum. She has written a book called Privacy in Context, which I think is wonderful. As I say, a lot of women have written on it recently, and some men, but her book, I think, is the best. And in it, she develops a framework for understanding what a privacy violation is. And she thinks it is what happens when one sphere is overlaps with another sphere, where there's a boundary between different spheres which is taken away. You know, a privacy um, abuse is when information flows in an inappropriate way, in a contextually inappropriate way. What am I talking about? For example, on medical matters, we talk to our doctor and we're very happy to share very personal information, very intimate information with the doctor. But if the doctor turns around and says, could I see your bank statement? We think, oh, that's inappropriate. That's out of context. And that would be a privacy intrusion by our doctor. Say we're talking to our banker, though, and we're quite happy to share our transaction information, our direct debits, our savings, all that stuff. But if, but if the banker then turns around and says, can I have your medical history or your genetic code or something like that, a red flag goes up, doesn't it? Because the banker shouldn't be asking about medical details any more than a doctor should be asking about financial information. So really, it's contextual integrity. We need to respect the integrity of the dis different spheres that we operate in in life. And I think that's a great way of thinking 
about what's going on today because basically we've got our spheres being invaded inappropriately. For example, when you buy something online, it might be something trivial like soap, and they suddenly ask you for your date of birth. And you think, you don't need to know my date of birth. I'm just buying soap. And you don't need to know anything about me except what is essential for my making a purchase. Isn't it the case that it's contextual integrity that is under threat in today's society? And we need to respect context. And that's the way to defend privacy. So this framework of contextual integrity has been very influential in recent thought. And for me, it is the best way of explaining what is going on of explaining our misgivings and sometimes our outrage at what is being expected and asked of us in today's society. Anyway, I hope you found that useful and do read stuff on privacy. This is the Polymath podcast and my aim is to stimulate thought and discussion and I'm going to be ranging over a wide range of issues. Today it is privacy, which is surely a big issue in today's world. In the next segment, I'm going to come up with four solutions for dealing with this surveillance problem that we're, we have today. Please stay on for that bit. Thank you for continuing with me. Hopefully I can assume you agree with me now that we have a surveillance problem, that privacy is an issue. There are four solutions, at least I haven't seen a fifth. First is we do what Nissenbaum, whom I quoted earlier, called obfuscation. Basically obscuring things. We should put in a false date of birth when someone unreasonably and out of context demands our date of birth. We should input false data or we should refuse to put in data. We should basically fight the system insofar as we can in little ways. Be an awkward customer. Obfuscation. She thinks, and she's a distinguished moral philosopher, that that is ethical because of the demands that are laid upon us, made upon us, we have a right to fight back by basically lying and uh, obscuring matters. So that's one way of dealing with privacy issues. A second way is to go much further and get off the grid. Turn systems off. Get out of society. Get out of the system. Go and live in a hut in a forest and don't have a phone, don't have a computer, don't have 
any means of communication with the outside world except perhaps verbal face-to-face -face communication. That's one way of doing it, isn't it? It's the Robinson Crusoe solution. The problem with it is it's not very practical for most people. If you've got a family, if you have a job and so on, you can't really do that. But it is a scenario. It is an option. Some people have taken that road and lived off the grid. So they don't suffer the panopticon, do they? A third way, quite the opposite, is to accept the panopticon. Do what Bentham said. Live more transparently. Live more openly. Bentham said the problem is privacy. The problem is secrecy. We should accept who we are, accept others as they are, and live more openly. That is a way of really dealing with this surveillance problem because you might argue that it's inevitable that Google will get us all in the end. Big Brother will get us. We do have basically a fate uh, given to us in post-modernity of being exposed, of being under scrutiny. Marx himself said that a problem with bourgeois society, a problem with capitalism, as he called it, is that we have two selves. We have a private self, which, you know, is our real self, and then there's, there's our public self, uh, the front we put on for others, and he thought that split us in two, and that in a communist society, which of course he was promoting, we would have our true selves only and we would live openly with one another. So that's an ideal of the panopticon, the ideal of an open society where secrecy and privacy have been banished from the world. But a fourth solution, that's three solutions. One is obfuscation. Second is getting off the grid completely. The third is accepting our fate of the panopticon, move into a new kind of society based on transparency and openness. But a fourth is to get political. If we have an issue over privacy, if there's something that's annoying us, we need to get into the public sphere, get out of our private comfort zones and start fighting for better laws or better regulations and perhaps join a privacy pressure group or lobby our members of parliament and other politicians to improve what is going on in the world today. So that's a fourth solution, getting political and actually changing the way society is organized in this matter. In the final section, I don't know which of these appeals to you, but in the final section, I'm going to interview someone who's done just that. He is the chair of a privacy pressure group called No2ID Edinburgh. And I'm going to interview him and ask him how he got involved and what he thinks is at stake in privacy matters. And I hope you'll find that interesting. I'm not going to sign off after that interview, so I'm going to say goodbye to you now. This is the Polymath podcast. I'm Professor Alistair Duff and I'm going to end in a few seconds with a live interview with a privacy campaigner. Thanks for listening so far. Bye-bye.
Hi, John. How are you doing? Okay, that's all, is it? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, good to speak to you. Can we plunge straight into the interview, because I'm recording this? Yeah, by all means, yes. Great. So, ju could you just say who you are, and say a bit about how you got involved with privacy uh, activism, please? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm John Welford. I was at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I, I think we, 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 the um, No to ID campaign started about ten years ago. And I think we were the only um, remaining, uh, you know, it was a national campaign, but I think we were the only, we were the only local campaign that was still going 10 years on. Uh, I was in charge of it. I was particularly concerned that when I originally got a, a city council bus pass, I think it was just a piece of cardboard, you know, it was clearly just a th something you showed the... Um, the bus, the bus driver, to get you on the bus. It possibly had a photograph, mm. um, and that—that's that, how it started. And all of a sudden, through the post, I got one of these flashy thing that did look like a real ID card. It was made of plastic, professionally made. It, it had a, a symbol on it saying it was an ITSO card, which is integrated integrated transport smart card organisation card so it was and it had a, a, a 16 character numeric identifier on it as well as my name uh and so you know the uh, i immediately spotted that this was not what it used to be <laughs> that, that's so that's how we got started with them um, really intensively opposing this card uh, i mean it, it was issued as, as i say as a as a as it's called an integrated transport smart code organization card it wasn't it was uh, it was interoperable it could be used for other things and that was my feeling that we've been issued with the thing was really an id card in all but name and um that's when we sort of stepped up our opposition to it so let yeah. me get this right what you saw was a trojan horse the um innocent looking bus pass was actually a going to turn into a fully-fledged yeah. identity card, which you and many others were campaigning, had campaigned against successfully. Yeah. Is that the scenario? Yes, and in fact, we set up in Princess Street at the east end of Princess Street, we set up a campaign stall. We we felt so, um, so deeply about this issue mm. that we, we set up a stall. Um, and uh, that, that was quite, kind of very successful as a... A campaigning device, yeah. Did you feel that people were buying into your concerns that, you know, the ordinary punter was just needed it to be pointed out and they shared the concern? Well, I think, I think as, as, as usual with these things, some people um, thought, thought we, were, we were barking up the wrong tree sort of thing. Other people thought with us, you know, there are clearly two people who are suspicious of the authorities and others who say, well, it's nothing really. <laughs> so mm. that, that's, we, we were straight down the middle with, that, with our, our um, campaigning members. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, now that you've killed off the identity card, which was a, a new Labour gimmick, wasn't it? Um, and the Conservatives yeah. didn't 
pursue it. In fact, I was, that was one of their manifesto promises, wasn't it? Yes, so it was. Ha- has it gone away, or do you, do you think it's coming back in, in a different shape or form? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I always thought um, this card, it'll be ready for them when they're ready to float it out. Yeah. But I, I suspect that if you want this kind of project, you, you're going to set up a database state with it, you see. All, all, all people's records, local re- well, national record, uh, records, will be linked together on the database. Now, this is an incredibly expensive operation with privacy issues and all kinds of things, mm. security issues. And I, it, they may have just cooled off on the whole thing and thought, no, we're not going to go there. It's just too complicated. So I, I suspect um, we, we, we went away from it because it, it, it was no longer kind of going to be a live issue anymore. And it hasn't in 10, it, uh, 10 years since we were doing these things, you know. Yeah. But I suppose the watchword is vigilance because... Yeah. These things can always reappear, can't they? And it's almost there's a sense of inevitability that they, they will reappear. Some, I mean, there are so many different parties and so many different, you know, lobby groups and social powers out yes. there that you, you just worry that the database state will be inevitable um, unless we're vigilant. Is that your mindset? Yes, I, I think that the, pre- the, present, the presence of our campaigning store at the east end of Printer Street set up a flag that said, if you go here, we're coming with you. You know, we're going to oppose this wherever it goes. Yeah, I like that. A flag. Nice one. A flag. Yeah. yeah. And all, I was going to say something there as well. The, um, I think they also had, I mean, this is sort of project of setting up a database state, which we were always opposed to. Is something which it would be quite difficult for an organisation to do. I mean, they couldn't do it without people realising what was happening for a start. Yeah. You know, I mean, the card the card would become an ID card essentially. People would have would be using it not only for a, as a bus pass, but for other purposes. So the the, the truth would be out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I think they they may have cooled off on that basis that oh no there are too many people watching for this and um it's going to be complicated for us and costly and all of that because you get it's huge security issues with cards like this what happens if somebody loses their card you know you've got to be able to cater for that yeah is it going to show up somewhere else will it raise a flag somewhere if somebody tries to use it somewhere else and all of that and i I just thought that they they perhaps have realized For the moment, anyway, it's a no-go area. (laughs) Well, I'd like to say thank you, John, for you know putting in the effort to to actually do something about it because so many people just go with the flow or you know accept it almost as an as an inevitability, as I said, and it really needs people to pop up and with that red flag in their hands, and you've done that. So thank you very much, John. Well, it was, it was something I felt compelled to do. And it, I, it, I'd come from a previous generation where I'd been um, a member of, um, what's it called? Um, Liberty. Yeah. I'd been a member of Liberty. I'd always been a member of Liberty. So I was, under, I, I was alive to these kind of issues. And so when this came along, it was just the next step. 
in my sort of liberty campaign. Right, so you're, yeah. you're a veteran. Well, look, John, that's all I've got time for. And yes. le let me just thank you again for being interviewed. And I will yes. um, let you know how, how we get on with this podcast. So it's well, all... What's going to happen to the podcast, by the way? Well, I'll tell you about that later, okay? Yes. Let, yeah. me, let me just say goodbye to you on air. And um, yeah. thank, thank you again for your good offices basically right and you're, you're, thank you're, you for that your <laughs> heroism there i say so bye bye john no problem bye bye